0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Acts chapter
1: 4, 32-37 through says this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, um, Lord, uh, I stand before you this morning a sinful and broken and weak man and uh, Lord you know that probably far better than I do and i'm certain that uh, many others in this room would probably join me in that same confession that we are sinful we are rebellious we're weak we're broken and yet you father are you're good and you're gracious and you're kind patient uh, you're merciful and you're you're loving
0: You're faithful. So, Father, in light
1: of that, God, we ask that you would come now speak to each of us through the preaching of your word. Lord, I've heard some in recent days say that uh, preaching doesn't make a difference. And uh, yet, Father, you have chosen from the beginning of time, really, um, chosen preaching as one of the primary ways that you would reveal yourself to your people. And so, God, I pray that you would do that, and then some this morning. Father, then take us to the foot of the cross. Remind us of the power of the empty tomb and refresh and renew and reawaken the hope within us for eternity with you because of the work of Jesus. Pray, Father, that you would magnify the name of Jesus more than anything else in our time together. Trust that you do just that. Everybody said, Amen. So this uh, passage that we uh, just read, um, I like to say, is basically Luke's description of the character of the early church. Um, Pretty simple, pretty straightforward, pretty brief. Um, It's a description, or an image, or a picture of the character of the early church. (coughs) You could say characteristics. Um, Same basic base word, right? Um, Here's the question. How would you describe A good church. How would you describe a healthy church when you think about that? Take a moment. Why do you drink a water? Think about a word that you would have that would
0: describe a healthy church. Ready? Set?
1: Now, something we don't normally do, but to make you all feel even more uncomfortable, share the word with me real fast. Just raise your hand real fast. (coughs) Jack. Thriving. Uh, T.J., Financially successful, maybe secure. <coughs> sorry, I'm going to go all the way over to the left-hand side. I don't remember your name, miss. I'm sorry. It's Jenny.
0: Accepting. Karen. United. Mature. Okay,
1: I'm going to go all the way to the back. I see Will. Interconnected, like intergalactic. No. Okay, Interconnected. Thanks, brother. I see Mary. Faithful. Good word, good word. I saw some more in the... uh, Yep, yep. Joyful. Joyful. There's some more in the back that I maybe missed. Yes. Selfless. Good. Anybody else?
0: (coughs) Boy, I'm rough this morning. Sharon. Magnificent.
1: These are all good words, you guys. They're great words. Good descriptors. I think oftentimes uh, we typically evaluate, when you think about this, I'm sure that you'll find this to be true, we typically evaluate the effectiveness or the, the vitality or the health of a, of a church family based upon things like buildings and programs and preaching and worship music and the friendliness of its people, right? Um, we ask questions like, hey, is the building beautiful? Is it kept up? Is it put together well? Are Are there programs in this church for... Men or women or children of all ages? Is, is the preacher faithful? Is he re- relatable, right? Uh, is he approachable? Um, is the music production on point? Um, are the people friendly with visitors? We ask these questions. And, and these questions aren't necessarily wrong. Please don't hear me wrong. They're not bad questions. They're not wrong questions at all. But I think that they are questions that the Bible typically doesn't seek to answer in the way that we ask them. If, if that makes sense. Um, it is true if you if you study the scriptures enough, you'll find that the the temple in the Bible was very beautiful. It was actually very expensive too, um, to build. and it, it was it was very well kept. There were specific instructions on how to keep the temple. So in the church's history back through Israel, you would see that, yes, an expensive, beautiful, well-kept building. Um, was something that was part of what it meant to be the community of God. Uh, preachers were definitely expected to be faithful to the Word. They were expected to be um, relating to current issues. Uh, there was an expectation there. You can see that in the prophets. You can see that all the way through even to New Testament preachers and apostolic preachers um, related to current issues well. Um, Easily approachable by people is very important as well, though I still struggle to see how Moses was very um, approachable to people after he melted down the golden calf and made everybody drink it. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, or Phineas, right? If I'm, You all heard me talk about Phineas. I love Phineas, but I mean, Phineas was so on fire for the holiness of God that he killed a couple that was having sex in the edges of the temple with a spear. He speared them together. Like, these are stories in the Bible that you probably don't always notice. I notice those because I go, I mean, these guys are preachers, okay? Well, I don't know how approachable those dudes were. I just, I don't get it. Anyways, I do think it's important that a preacher be approachable, and then scriptures do uphold that, Okay. I do think that there uh, was definitely an expectation all throughout Israel's history and in through the local church in the New Testament, as you look into the book of Acts, there's definitely an expectation that the community of God, the family of Jesus of all ages would labor um, to commit to um, learning and teaching, receiving instructions from God's word. So there there would be specific times of study um, where where you would have the Bible opened and Learn the the word of God together. Um, If you ever read the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms is full of beautiful God-centered worship songs. And those songs were sung historically by Israel and even by the early church and by many churches still today. This was the hymnal um, the book of Psalms was for Israel and for the early church. there would also be, if you were to look in even the old Mosaic law, and, you, and then you come into the New Testament, you would see that there was definitely an expectation and, and a teaching um, throughout Israel's history and throughout the church that the family of God, the people of God, would be friendly with outsiders. Why? So that they could someday become insiders. Now, I know we don't like to use the exclusive language of outsiders and insiders, um, we like the more inclusive language that everyone is welcome. But even in saying that, you're, you're defining that there is definitely somebody who is a visitor, somebody who's not new, or somebody who is new. I want to make them welcome, and there's, there's something to that. Very, very important, right? I remember before I became a preacher, visiting around to different churches, and there were some Baptistic churches I would walk into, man, that would just be full of really grumpy people. When you walk in, you got this sense that they were like, down their
0: noses at you. I was like anybody, anybody know who that is? Got tattoos. I don't That was a
1: sense, right? <laughs> Y'all know what that feels like. <laughs> you don't have to have tattoos to, to know what that feels like. You walk into a room and you know instantly whether you're welcomed and whether you're walking into a family that is welcoming and inviting or not. Do you think there's an expectation there? All of this said, um, I'm, just, I'm laying out that I don't think the questions that we ask are necessarily wrong or bad in regards to things like buildings and preachers and music and so on and so forth. It's just that when you study the Bible, the, the Bible doesn't seek to answer those questions from the standpoint of a consumer who is walking into a church building or a church function Like we walk into Walmart as a consumer, um, looking for the right thing, the right fit. And again, fit's not bad either, but I don't think the Bible seeks to answer the questions from that standpoint. They're they're typically answered from the standpoint of what it means to be a, a faithful contributor, a faithful member of a church family. And the church family is made up of members and how you express that in the physical realm looks different in every church family. There are some who say, hey, if you come here and you give money, you're a member. I personally reject that idea. Because just giving money doesn't give you a, make you a member of a church, right? Um, there are some who have like really long, beefy documents. and you a, I was talking to my son-in-law last night, and he was saying the church that they're at right now, it, it, it's an 18-month process to become a member of their church. 18-month process. Um, There's something that's not bad about that when you think about that. In the early Anabaptist movement, um, uh, if you came in and said you were a believer, they would say, yeah, we'll wait for three years before we baptize you and just make sure that you're not an imposter. It would take that long to become a member. And today in our society, these things um, maybe sound kind of funny. Maybe they sound weird or are outdated, antiquated maybe, Right? I share all that to say there are various different ways physically, in the physical realm of thinking through membership and how you become a member. Um, But ultimately, the church family is made up of members. It's an invisible thing that happens as you become a believer, as you trust in Jesus. You become a member of God's church universally. The, The next step in commitment to becoming a member of a local church, that's between you and the Lord and how that pathway looks and what church is a good fit for you and some of the questions we asked earlier are right but should be asked from a contributor standpoint of hey if i'm going to be part of this church family am i going to contribute to these kinds of characteristics follow me rather than what am i going to get out of this the question is what can i give to this how can i be a viable piece of a healthy church and really, like I said, this is what Luke describes in our text. He describes the character of the early church. First thing you might notice with me is that he describes the, the early church as full of unity and selflessness. Some of you use these words already when describing the church. And really what he does, I'll set you up for this right away. He, as he works through this, he, he basically describes the church, the church in pairs. And I think in these pairs they really work together. The first pair is unity and selflessness. If you look at verse thirty-two, what does he say? He says, "All of those who believed—that's an important characteristic, right? To be a member of a church, thou shalt believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he did what he said he was going to do. You got to be saved. You got to be a Christian. You got to be a believer." He says that all those who believed, basically all who claimed to be Christians, were what? They they were united in heart and in soul. These are are two very important descriptors when you think about it. Heart and soul. Means that they were united in the deepest parts of their beings, in their heart, right? Um, And their soul would be like their mind. So they're united in the deepest part of their beings and in the center of feelings and desires and wants. But they were also united in the highest levels of their thoughts and their emotions. I uh, was just talking earlier this morning, right before service, about uh, um, uh, the old idea of the tripart being. And y'all are like, what are you even talking about, right? <laughs> Philosophers for centuries have debated whether we as human beings are two parts or triparts. And uh, I think most biblical theologians that are faithful and can be accepted, I think, as good, solid teachers would argue for a tripart being uh, heart, mind, and soul. Um, There's probably other ways of describing it, but heart, mind, and soul. There's also a physical and an invisible side of us. And so you put all that together. It's fascinating if you ever get into philosophy. um, But in what Luke is saying here is he's saying, hey, everything about these people was united. The consistent image of believers all throughout the book of Acts and all throughout Scripture, and especially the book of Acts, this consistent picture that you get uh, is a picture of church members who are fully dependent on Jesus. And because they're all dependent on Jesus, they're not necessarily depending on one another, they're looking to Jesus as the one who can meet all of their needs and do everything that they need Done, right? Uh, Because they're all looking to Jesus. They're completely unified. And it's an image, it's a physical image in this world of the Trinitarian Godhead. When you think of Father, Son, and Spirit. uh, Co-eternal. Co-existent. Completely unified. Never separated. Which makes Christ's death at the cross a mystery to us. When you think about the implications of that. So what we are to do, not only in the church, but you think about marriages and friendships, there are ways in which we exhibit an image like a mirror. When we're looking into the mirror of who God is and who Christ is, we, we are then enabled to and shaped into image bearers of a Trinitarian Godhead, fully united the world around us. Imagine, like, when you think about the world we live in, it's broken, it's divided. Everywhere you look, there's division. And it was the same in the church's day. Now, not only were they fully united, and I don't want you to get this wrong, they're not uniform, okay? They're not wearing the same things. They're not using the exact same words. Um, They don't work the same jobs. They don't have the same incomes. They don't wear the same clothes. I already said that. Um, They're not uniform. Uniformity is not unity although there were periods and portions of the church throughout history that did try to strike for uniformity. We will measure your dresses when you walk in. Make sure you don't have flowers in your hair. The guys better wear three-piece suits. If you didn't, we'd have a jacket for you when you walked in the door to put it on. That's uniformity. That's a huge focus on externals rather than the internals. So they weren't uniform, they were united. And they were united from the depths of their being because from the depths of their being they were focused on this Jesus, what united them. It wasn't even like they were so much looking at each other and going, Michael, you and I need to get more united. It wasn't necessarily that either. It was more like Michael and I, because we're just looking to Jesus together, we are united. There's a deeper bond there of unity. And it's Christ who unites us. This principle also works in marriages, friendships, where there's brokenness and division. If both parties would... But from this level, look up to Jesus. They would meet there. What happens is at the bottom of the triangle, we often look at each other like, oh, you're, you're not meeting my needs well enough. Well, neither are you. Well, maybe you should do better. Well, maybe y'all try. And there's no Jesus in the midst of that. That's just two people looking at humanity trying to think that humanity is going to do what only the Savior can do. A picture of unity. They're not only united, not uniform. But they're also overflowing with that characteristic of selflessness. Think about selflessness. If there's one thing that I think breaks unity down the quickest, it's selfishness. The opposite of selflessness. So I think there's, in the Holy Spirit's unique wisdom as he sovereignly writes through Luke, as he writes the book of Acts, there's this out there. Selflessness. You look at the second part of verse 32, and Luke says that the, the, the early church did not view their possessions as things that belonged to them. So this, this wasn't like when you get married, you're like, hey, what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine. <laughs> you know, that old phrase. They did not view their possessions as things that actually belonged to them, but instead, what does he say? He says they had everything in common, meaning that what they did possess actually belong to everyone else in the community. So it's more like, hey, what's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine. Right? We've probably heard that. That's, a, that's what's taking place here. Luke is saying that's what they're doing. They're saying, hey, everything I have, I only have, not to just benefit me and further my life. Everything I have is given to me so I might benefit you. It's a very selfless characteristic, a selfless attitude. And this, uh, I think this characteristic of radical selflessness, I think it's a direct result. It results from something. Now here's what it doesn't result from. I don't think that it results at all from somebody going, gosh dang it, I need to become more selfless and quit being so selfish. Although there is a recognition of sin in that when somebody says that. Our problem is, is we kind of get stuck there, right? And we start thinking of like crafty ways that we can become Less selfish. And we kind of look to ourselves and our own strength. And you know what happens is it becomes really inconsistent. The reason there's inconsistencies in our character growth, in our growth and maturity, is because we look more to ourselves and our own crafty plans to become what we want to become. The reality, though, is that if we looked to the one who is what we want to be, you and I would see results. This is the testimony of every person who has followed Jesus and continued to cling to the cross and cling to the empty tomb and cling to the hope of heaven constantly. As you look to the one who is perfect, who went before you, it is in that that you and I become transformed, become more holy. I don't think the early church arrived at this level of unity and selfishness because they wanted to reach the lost. Although that was a desire, I don't think that's why they arrived here. I think they were unified that they were selfless because they focused on the cross. I mean it's all they talk about. If you want to know what's going on in somebody's heart and mind, listen to what they talk about most. I and mean, all throughout the book of Acts, like every conversation, every time they have an opportunity to speak publicly, what are they talking about? Jesus. Okay? They're unified, they're selfish, selfless, not selfish. Because they focus on the cross, they focus on the empty tomb, they, they were holding on to the hope of heaven. And they they did this as they looked at their selfless Savior. Jesus was absolutely selfless as he died in our place, wasn't he? Rose victorious over Satan, sin, and death, promised to return to take us into eternity. This is a selfless act for enemies. What we once were enemies is the way the Scripture puts it, before Christ, before we trusted in him, I, I always say, I, you'd find me hard-pressed to uh, give anything to an enemy other than a knuckle sandwich. That's <laughs> well, not Jesus in this case. So if you struggle with unity or if you struggle with selflessness, uh, the baseline thing I can tell you is look to the cross. Behold your crucified Savior. Look to the empty tomb. Witness in those moments Christ's power over Satan, sin, and death. Always remember that Satan comes to accuse you and sin comes to tempt you and death comes to taunt you. And in the midst of all of that, if you and I would but just look to Christ's empty tomb and to his finished work at the cross, if you would see and I would see his selfless plan of redemption on our behalf when we were but rebels and enemies of him, if we were to do that consistently, I guarantee you you would look back Over the course of time, and you would see measurable growth in your ability to be selflessly united to your brothers and your sisters in Christ, just as you see here in the text. Second pair in the text, power and grace. The second pair that we see in verse 33, Luke tells us that the early church was full of what? Power and grace. You look at verse 33, what does he say? He says, with great power comes great responsibility. Did you read that the same way I did? No, Spider-Man said that, I think. Or maybe it was Spider-Man's uncle. Um, Is it a true proverb? Yes, but uh, Spider-Man's uncle is not in the Bible here. (laughs) With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all, he says. So from the outside looking in, if you were... If you were able to stand there during this time, during the first century, and you were on the outside, you're, you're looking in, you're, you're viewing the early church, man, it's it's unlike any other religious movement in history, okay? At this point in history, the church was not necessarily marred by a lust for power or an infatuation with wealth or this insidious blind eye that seems to get turned towards slavery and social justice over the centuries. When you you do a good study on church history, it is absolutely fascinating on the one side and absolutely gut-wrenching on the other. The early church here at this precise moment in history, now it's all going to change as soon as we break into uh, chapter 5, verse 1, just so you know that, some things are going to change. But at this precise moment in the story, in the narrative, the church is not known for big expansive buildings. They're not known for preachers in million-dollar three-piece suits. They're not known for an unhealthy alliance with the national empire. That's going to happen in the next couple of centuries from this point forward. They're not going to be known at this point for an inclusive theology that ignores the plain teachings of Scripture in regards to sin, as we are known for quite often now. They're, they're not going to be known right here in this moment for this, what I would call a very sickening legal, legalistic misuse of Scripture that fails to protect the weak and vulnerable. The early church at this very moment in history, as you look at it, was known for its undeniable power and its obvious evidence of true grace. It's refreshing. You might remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, um, Go and wait in Jerusalem for my Holy Spirit to come. When the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power.
0: Buy airplanes, get the government on your side, and to build big mansions. Did I say buy airplanes?
1: That's not what he said, is it? <laughs> he said, I'm going to give you power so that you can be my witnesses. And we have, the church has, prostituted that word witness for centuries. Used it as the reason, and I would say excuse, for all sorts of lavishness that God never meant. At this point, the dynamic power of the early church's message coming out of Acts 1-8, where Jesus said that, and Luke writing this, he's reminding us, hey, power is evident. What Jesus said is actually happening, it's coming true. That word power in the Greek was dynamis or dunamis, it means dynamite power, explosive power. The dynamic or dynamite power of the early church's message. man, And what was it centered on? It was centered on the crucified, risen, and returning Savior. It's all they talked about. What you didn't have then was these these sermons uh, on Sunday mornings where it was aimed at you and your felt needs and how if you just did steps one through five, your life would get better and you would have the best life now. That's a very humanistic message the message of the early church simply was Christ, crucified, risen, and returning. And the thing is, is that for those during that century and centuries to follow, if that message did not awaken you, you, encourage you, strengthen you, and help to transform you, then the question was, are you a believer then? That would be the question that would naturally come out. The apostles in these moments and throughout the book of Acts held firm to this message. It was on their lips consistently with power. And what flowed out of that was this overwhelming grace. Because when you meditate on the message of the gospel and you preach the gospel to yourself daily, and you might say, what is the gospel I have forgotten already? I started with an... Description of the gospel. And if you struggle to preach the gospel to yourself daily, you might be wise in these moments to listen and write the gospel message down in its simplicity. God created me to be with Him. Our sin separates us from God. Sin cannot be made right by my own actions. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. Everyone who trusts in Jesus gets eternal life. Life eternal begins now and lasts forever. Simple gospel message. Wake up every morning, preach it to yourself. Apply it to specific situations in your life. And here's what I'll tell you. Six months from now, a year from now, you would see a radical change and a difference in your soul. Not only in your soul, but in the words that come out of your mouth and the power by which you share the gospel. with In the midst of that, what will happen is overwhelming grace as a pair with power. Overwhelming grace will characterize your life. Why? Because you'd be constantly preaching the gospel to yourself. I am unworthy. I am sinful. I am broken. I am weak. And Jesus himself, he is powerful. He's magnificent. He's my savior. He's the king. He's the Lord of Lords. He's gracious. He's loving. He's kind. He's merciful. And he has wired me in such ways that I never even saw before. Even my own giftings and wirings at that time. Even the things that are good about me. I often want to take credit for in the mirror. Because we love to take credit for the things that we do, and we love to blame the things that we don't do or or our sin on somebody else, right? My boy, I can't believe I just remodeled my house recently. But man, the only reason my wife and I can't get along is because she is just... Have you ever seen her? I would never say that, obviously. She's sitting back there, and
0: she is a pretty good aim. So...
1: get my point, right? What happens is humility grows in you. And, and the characteristic of grace is so obvious on you because you are relying on the grace of God, a unearned gift, an unearned favor. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Him. The more that you lean into the gospel, the more the power of the Spirit becomes evident in you, and the more that grace becomes evident all over you. So if you struggle with this, you struggle with experiencing the power of the cross. If you struggle with experiencing the power of the resurrection or the promised return of Jesus, it is because you're looking somewhere else. You're looking to cheap substitutes for the power that you need. If you find yourself being absolutely graceless with your friends or your family, or even your enemies. The reason why you're struggling in that area is because you have bought into what is called a works-based righteousness. A works-based theology where you think that you have gotten everything you have, you've gotten to the point you're at because you worked hard for it. And this is difficult for us because from the moment we are born, we are shaped and molded by this idea that he who works receives a paycheck. Right? Well, the only paycheck you and I actually get in the spiritual realm is this paycheck called death. That's the paycheck. Everything we work for is going to result in that no matter how good you think you are. There's enough sin in there, just a tiny little shred. That will make you and I worthy of nothing more than death and separation from God. That's the paycheck. That's what you earn. In the message of the gospel, you're given a free gift by God's grace called salvation. It's called relationship with a God who created the world and gave his son for you. If I, if my son died today, if people came in and dragged him out of here, my only son, I have six daughters and we labored hard to get a son, if you understand what that means. (laughs) Meaning, what is wrong with y'all? Meaning, my girls prayed hard For a boy to be born. (laughs) Somebody came and dragged my son out of here and crucified him outside because somehow his death would fix some rampant sickness like COVID running around the world. I would be hard pressed to want to be in a relationship with any of those people.
0: The difference is God planned that. God planned
1: that to happen from before the foundations of the earth. I don't know what else could move us deep down inside other than that message. The more that you recognize, the more that I recognize the depravity of our own sin and our own soul, the more that we wind up turning in desperation to the cross and the empty tomb and the hope of heaven. And I believe, and I always preach, that only there is where you'll find a dynamite, dynamic power that is full of grace and full of mercy that both you and I personally need, not only for our own growth and well-being and spiritual health and maturity, but also for others around us. True spiritual power, true grace can be found nowhere else other than the cross and the empty tomb and the promised return of Jesus. That's where I encourage us all Spend our time. Third thing we notice in the text, the third pair in the text is generosity and encouragement. This is the third thing Luke tells us about. He tells us that the early church was full of generosity, full of encouragement. Verses 34-37 through briefly, uh, Luke basically says that no member of the church was in need. Just comprehend that for a moment. No member of the church was in need. Now, I don't think that that meant that every person in the community of Jerusalem um, had their needs met. It, it wouldn't mean for us that the entire city of Hastings had their needs met. I think we sometimes get this wrong. I've heard people say, hey, if the church did what it's supposed to do, if church members gave what they're supposed to give you wouldn't need a social system anymore. Well, I think that's hogwash. Could there be some truth to that? Yeah, there could be some truth to that, but the reality is, while the church is meant to be concerned with what's outside the walls of our gathering, outside our family, the truth is, I think what's being said here, is no member of that church family went needy. So envision this, if you will. My family, we have seven kids, right? Six daughters and one son that we worked hard for. And those seven children, and my wife and I, lived in a home with a fence around it. We had boundaries, kept the bad guys out, and kept us safe. Okay? There's lots of other ways we did that, too. Well, we lived in this home. We lived in the neighborhood. Um, not one of our children in our family, nor my wife nor myself, ever went without the things that we needed. Our family was taken care of. And in the midst of that, in the midst of us being taken care of by God's provision, and as we focused on each other as a family and led each other to Jesus, right, we would also be aware of the needs throughout our immediate neighborhood. Not every person's needs could we meet, but we met some. For instance, when a lady got shot on our block, I think seven times, on her front porch, we were able to help a little bit there and be available to people. Um... There are times when neighbors need dogs let out or groceries carried in, and we're able to help with some needs. Um, knew somebody on our block once that I think went through a surgery and a season where they were without work. We were able to help provide some groceries. This is not to like, pat myself on the back. This is just giving you an example of what the church might look like and what I think the church looked like here. I think we oftentimes look at the church with rose-colored glasses. Like, well, everybody was so generous that there were no needs. Well, there were still needs in Jerusalem. It's just that the church members, among those members, there were no needs. And and think about this. There's a priority there too, right? Like, I'm not going to ensure that my family starves so that a family down the street eats. That wouldn't be responsible of me as a father, right? Wouldn't be responsible for us as a family. And so you do these things responsibly when it comes to this act of generosity, what Luke tells us is that no member of the church was in need. Why? Because anyone who owned what I would say, and I believe this is faithful, anyone who owned extra land or had extra houses, what did they do? They, they sold them. And they gave the proceeds from those sales to the apostles so that they could distribute those funds to anyone that was in need. And I think in the midst of that, the apostles also proved themselves as faithful leaders with the money that was given to them at their feet. I think that's an important key aspect of how generosity continues to flourish in a church family. There has to be faithful leadership. If you guys all gave a little extra this week and you showed, saw me show up next week with uh, a brand new Harley Davidson, you should probably ask me what's going on and take a look at the checkbook, right?
0: That's not going to happen. Two years from now on the first Monday of 2025, that's when it's gonna happen. (sighs) Ask my wife, she'll tell you that story.
1: (laughs) So I do think there's some trust that is important when it comes to leaders in a church as well. Um the other thing that Luke tells us here is that one of the people that was being generous, he actually names somebody, which I think is fascinating. When you put yourself in the shoes here, it'd be like it'd be like me. Writing this letter to our church members today and saying, hey, I just want to tell this story for future generations to know. Our church has been so generous lately, and there's this dude named Michael, because I've been picking on Michael. You wouldn't believe how generous Michael has been. Like, he's such an encouragement. The guy owned a couple extra cars and a lake somewhere. I didn't know this. Did you know this? Yeah, he owned a lake. And he sold the lake. And he, and he brought the money, and he laid it here at our leader's feet and said, here, use this to care for the needs of the church family. Which inexplicitly or explicitly would also mean caring for the needs of the leaders of the church. It would be both. Well, oftentimes we get really, really mad because some of the leaders in the church, staff members, they make money to like, do what we do, right? And it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. There's no other profession in the world where in your initial day of getting hired, the hiring committee asks you,
0: how much can your family live on? Like, you
1: don't, you don't have a chart of what you know, a minister should make. <laughs> There's no range here for the, for the job. No, just what can you, can your wife work? Because if she could work, it'd sure make it easier on. We wouldn't have to give so much. No other profession in the world where that, where you can get away with that. None. And who would work that job anyways?
0: You'd be crazy, I think.
1: So This generosity is taking place here. Luke actually names this dude named Barnabas. There's a few things about Barnabas that are really interesting. Barnabas is going to come up more in the story as time goes on. He's going to become Paul's right-hand man at some point uh, for a while. And then at some point, Paul and Barnabas are going to separate because of a sharp dispute and an argument over a dude named John Mark, who kind of a scoundrel for a moment. Paul's like, "Be gone with you! You're probably still a believer, but I don't like you, so go somewhere else." And Barnabas is like, "Yo, Paul, it's being a little harsh. I'll take him with me." And Paul's like, "Good, good riddance. See ya." I mean, this stuff happens, right? It's human life on life. At this moment, we're, we 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 are introduced to this man named Barnabas. He's a Levitical priest. So he has some responsibility in the church, so to speak. Um, I don't have time to go into the Levitical priesthood and and all that, but there's some responsibility as a leader that he has. You could say there's an implication here that leaders must go first. You could say that. So back to the giving thing. If I were to ask our members to give money to the church, but I'm not doing that. If I were to ask our members to give 10%, but I'm not doing that. I would be a hypocrite, right? So in this same case, I think what Luke does, by the power of the Spirit, under his influence, right, is he names this guy Barnabas. He's a Levitical priest, he's a leader, and, he, and he's going first. And he's also known to be this man who was an encourager. His original name was Joseph, but they called him Barnabas because his primary gift was encouragement. Um, I don't know if you know somebody who is an encourager to you, um, but you know what it's like when that encourager is not available to you? Um, which means that you know what it's like when that encourager is available. It's a gift, right? They're a blessing to you. (coughs) This was Barnabas. He's not just an encourager because he's wired that way. He's an encourager because of the way that he gave. And the bottom line that I think Luke is trying to get across here is that people get really encouraged when church members practice generosity. There's a difference between wanting something and needing something. Agreed? Okay. A lot of things that we want. Getting something you want can be very exhilarating on a birthday, Christmas, Father's Day, Mother's Day, whatever it may be. It can be really fun to get a gift, something you want. But I would say this, having your needs met by someone else, what is that? It's encouraging, yes, but think about this. It's also absolutely humbling. Because it's a reminder that you can't do it on your own. And you actually rely or depend on somebody else to help you out. That's a big deal. Creates humility. I remember how encouraged I was uh, personally. Some of you have followed this story. I remember how encouraged I was personally over the last couple of months. Uh, My friend Brian, who uh, passes a church in Africa, um, he and his wife just gave birth to a baby, um, newborn, probably two weeks old, and uh, got 18 orphans. And uh, over the last three months, our church family has covered the expenses of their food. Uh, for a month, it's 450 dollars a month for them to feed 20 of them now 21 with a new baby, and uh, 450 bucks a month. Uh, I, I couldn't feed seven of us on 450 dollars a month all those years in our house. Well, there's nine of us actually, seven kids, two adults, and really, I'm like two people in one. If you look at me, I like to eat so foodie. Yeah. I could never feed us on 450 bucks. But over the last three months, it's been really encor- It's a, been a huge encouragement to me. But I can't even begin to describe for you how encouraging it's been to Brian when he wakes up in the morning after somebody in our church family has given a month's worth of money for their food. The kinds of messages I'll see from him, the, the time when I'll be on the phone with him or, or do a FaceTime call, and he's weeping and crying because he is completely blessed. And he, by, For him, face, faceless people, the only face he can put to our congregation really is me. So he'll say, well, thank you so much, Papa Joe. He calls me Papa, Papa Joe. And I, I tell him, I said, no, thank the Lord. There's, God's doing something in our church because everybody, you can all look around. We're not a huge church. We're not a wealthy church. God's doing that through people in our church. It's encouraging. Encouraging to him, encouraging to me. I remember my own journey. I'm trying to wrap this up quick. I remember my own journey in growing, and growing in my desire and my ability to give generously in my earlier years of following Jesus. The problem for me when it came to giving generously is I didn't comprehend the generosity of God in the cross of Jesus. That's what it all comes down to. There's lots of books written on financial management and being generous and so on and so forth, and some are very good practically for learning how to Budget your money and be faithful and wise with it. But when it comes to just flat out being generous and being faithful stewards of our money, at the end of the day, the crux of the issue is Jesus. I had a hard time comprehending the generosity of God in the cross of Jesus, where where what Jesus did, what God did through Jesus at the cross, is he literally poured out the riches of his love, the wealth of his love in Jesus. Jesus. There's, I tell you, there's not much more that I value on this earth outside of one of my kids. Right? You, you, you think of that same value, and in Christ it was all the riches of salvation. All the wealth of God's love poured out for us. Wretched sinners, enemies of the cross, so we could be ransomed and adopted into the family. If you struggle in this area, like if giving generously, giving sacrificially, giving proportionately to what you make, if that's a struggle, let me just say it clearly. The reason that you struggle is not because of the common excuses that we all make. It's not because you don't have enough to go around. It's not because you don't, it's not because you have bills to pay. It's not even because you don't trust the church. Although those excuses They do come from reasons that I do think need to be dealt with, right? Like, I need to faithfully manage and steward and budget my money so that I can pay my bills faithfully. And oftentimes, it's always going to look like there's not enough to go around. But usually, the needing to pay bills faithfully and the lack of money there has less to do with the actual bills and the amount of money has more to do with my faithfulness and how I spend and what I spend on. It's been proven uh, if you, uh, you cut one cup of coffee from the gas station even, not even Starbucks, because Starbucks is like really expensive. You just cut one of those out per day. It's amazing how much money you could regain into your budget. So yes, there's a faithfulness issue. And yes, churches need to be trustworthy. We need to prove that. Our leaders need to prove that. Yet at the end of the day... Those aren't the issues. The issues is deep down inside of us, right? We've not been confronted in the generosity of the cross of Christ. That's what we need to be confronted with. The generosity of the cross of Christ. The generosity of Jesus, where his body was broken on our behalf. Where every last drop of his precious blood was poured out for us while we were his enemies. That's meant to encourage us. It's meant to encourage us to live our lives in such radical obedience that we actually trust God to provide for us spiritually and physically as we labor to encourage others in meeting their needs through our generosity. A church that is full of generous members is a church that is an encouragement in the midst of what I would call a selfish and perverse generation. As we wrap this up. We began by asking um, how you would describe a healthy church. We took a look at how Luke describes the characteristics of the early church. The only question left for us to ask is, how do we continue to become a healthy church? I want to answer it this way. It's simple. I've been saying it all the way through, but I want to say it clearly one last time. And it's simple, but it's hard. Because carrying crosses as disciples is not easy. If we as members of God's church would cling to these truths, Christ united, Christ selfless, Christ powerful, Christ gracious, Christ generous, and Christ as our primary encourager, then I think we would characterize those traits as well. And the place that you even begin to do that is at the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb as you hold on to the hope of heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Pray, Father, in these closing moments that you would come and, and meet with us in a unique way. Help us to remember, and not only remember, but also celebrate the work of your son Jesus at that cross. I pray, Father, that you would apply to us once again the power the shed blood and broken body of Jesus. I trust you to do this.